0: That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. said. Well, that's what she said.
1: Welcome to That's What She Said conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. edition of that's what she said with Sarah Spain I am so excited for you guys to hear this edition I could have talked to my guest for literally hours and I kept saying oh, you have a couple more minutes you have a couple more minutes and I'm gonna hopefully at some point be able to have him back on because I just really loved talking to him Michael Shore television Wonderkind I think he's still young enough that we could say that about him producer writer actor um and you'll hear all the accolades uh but such an interesting person to talk to. I actually got put in touch with him because he wrote a story about the Levitard show with Stu for Slate. And I spoke to him for a full hour on the phone about that show, not knowing that he was the creator of Parks and Rec and the Happy Place and, you know, producer and actor on The Office. I had no idea that he was this amazing television creator. Um, We just kind of, you know, shot the you-know-what for an hour about doing the radio show and everything else. And, I hung up and later found out that it was him who had decided to write the piece and that he's Ken Tremendous on Twitter, formerly a Fire Joe Morgan, and all these things started to come together, and I was like, I got to talk to this guy. He's just fascinating, and he did not disappoint, so you guys are going to love this conversation. Uh, here's my chat with Michael Schur. That's what she said. Happy to welcome in today's guest, TV producer, writer, and actor, the co-creator of Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, creator of The Good Place, You might best recognize his face from his role as Moe's on The Office, the cousin of Dwight Schrute. You might even know him as Ken Tremendous on Twitter and sports blogs but his real name is Mike Shore and I'm so happy that he decided to take the time to chat with me after we had an hour long phone chat about the Levitard show for a Slate article and I had no idea I was talking to this superstar TV producer creator and author mm-hmm. and writer and everything else so um that's a good sign for you Mike that I had no idea that you were this super famous dude we were just <laughs> chatting about a TV uh, a radio show
0: yeah that was uh, I I, I want, really wanted to write about Levitard for Slate because I had just become like a super fan. And um, I have a sort of weird uh, uh, fake career as a sports writer on the side, <laughs> like a, a quasi-career. And um, I, I'm, I'm happy that you didn't know who I was, because I really wanted to get a, a true reading on that show and the people who make it. And uh, what was interesting about it was it wasn't just you. I talked to Amin El and I talked to Amina Kimes. Um, I talked to Pablo Torre, I talked to all those people and every one of you talked to me way longer than you needed to, <laughs> which I it was like, this is a good sign. Like it's, these people are passionate about this thing that they do and that they care about. So, uh, it was really fun. Thank you for talking to me for that piece. It was really helpful. And, uh, and I'm very happy with the way it turned out.
1: Yeah, it turned out, it turned out great. It was great. And I love doing that show. And I think probably cause we all love Dan and he's like our, He's like our entertainment dad, our, our fairy dad mother. So we were happy to, to talk about that show. And Stugatz, of course. He's our Funkle. Um, <laughs> um, so let's let's go back to the beginning before you had created all these hit shows. You, you were raised in West Hartford, which is actually right down the street from ESPN. Um, what kind of kid were you?
0: I was an incredibly studious child. I never made trouble. I did all of my homework every day. I didn't have a sip of alcohol until I was in college. Um, was suburban Connecticut is is like classic, sort of John Hughes movie suburbs. Yes. I would say like it's very safe and quiet and predominantly Caucasian. And the the trouble that people get into if they get into trouble is like drinking and driving and, and stuff like that. Um, it's that kind of trouble. So I but I never caused trouble for anyone. I was incredibly cautious and uh, rule following. I was a middle child. So I was sort of gr- and I grew up like my parents got divorced when I was nine. And I was I was I took the path psychologically. I took the path of like I'm going to like not I'm not going to do anything wrong. I'm gonna like <laughs> I'm going to like do everything right. I'm going to not cause any trouble for anybody. And uh, I'm I'm glad I did because I you know, it was that, that was a good way to navigate the Connecticut suburbs was like, just put your head down and do all your homework and, and, uh, and get out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I read that a Woody Allen book is what caused you to first get interested in comedy.
0: Yeah. It's a kind of a, a sad, <laughs> sad fact in my life right now, Yeah. Uh, because that's still like on my Wikipedia page or whatever. But yeah, uh-huh. I, when I was a kid, probably 11 or something, I read, he, Woody Allen wrote three books of like sort of comedy pieces um, without uh, without feathers getting even side effects, whether they were called. And I read all of them, and it's it sort of like it was a real revelation for me. Like, I it was it's very silly um, humor. It's very goofy early Woody Allen humor. There's a there's a kind of there's like two kinds of camps I would say of people who who go into comedy or comedy writing. One of them is suburban boredom, which is what I was. <laughs> um, suburban boredom is like you read those early Woody Allen books, you watch Monty Python. Mm-hmm. Um, you watch, you know, you get, in, you get really into like silly, like airplane and naked gun and stuff like mm-hmm. that. That's the suburban boredom track. And then the other, the other way in is like, is pain. And that's usually, you know, ethnic minorities, um, and through, you know, generations of systemic oppression who use humor as a sort of like coping mechanism or a way to sort of fight back when they feel powerless. And I being a, a Caucasian child from suburban Connecticut, that, that path was not, <laughs> Was not open yeah, it was to me. Not available, which is a good <laughs> no. thing
1: in general. Until until those people pass you by, and you're like, "I'm just not troubled enough." <laughs> that's right. <laughs> right. So
0: I I was definitely on the suburban boredom train, and yeah. so yeah, those those Woody Allen books and um and 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 Monty Python and uh, all that Maybe sort like of stuff. That, that's Academy? how I can we, can that was my entry point. Police Academy. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. I although those movies were like I was I was sort of like um. I was a very uh innocent child and so even oh. the police academy movies even had a, were a little racy for me when oh, they came wow. out. I okay. remember how old I was when they <laughs> came out. I was pretty young I think. I was born yeah. in 75 so I don't know. I I was probably so like you're, a little younger than
1: me by a handful of years but my parents just had no control. I was I was <laughs> watching Coming to America and like The Royal Penis Washed Your Highness when I was like 7. So I was a little ahead of the game I
0: think. Well, I remember like in in um Airplane, I think the first airplane either one or two i can't remember there's a there's a shot of a a woman naked from the waist up and it's very silly um and it's because it's like the plane is bouncing around and the camera kind of finds it yeah and but i remember seeing that and just feeling like weird like oh i shouldn't (laughs) be seeing this this isn't appropriate and i have a 10 year old son now and he is he is very much the same way like when he still he we um, I showed him it's weird. I showed him the Naked Gun last night. We watched the Naked Gun last night. And even in these absurd scenes where Leslie Nielsen and Priscilla Presley are like kissing, he still like averts his eyes and goes, no, make it go oh away. No. And I, I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh, you're my son.
1: Him, you've kept him so precious. <laughs> well, done. that's tough to do these days. Congratulations. Yeah, it that. really is. <laughs> Um, so you go on to Harvard. Uh, what did you study? And at that point, were you on the, the track of, I'm going to work in comedy already? Or were there other options that you had in your head?
0: I studied English literature um, for, for like, just a lack of anything else to that I was really interested in. I just wanted to, did like, I? read books. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I was really into, into math and physics in high school. And I was sort of like, I had a little bit of a feeling of, like, maybe I'll be, like, into uh, – I'll study math and physics in college and then I got to college and I took, I went to like a math. I went to like, I would do advanced calculus class and immediately was like, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> like these, these kids are good at math. Like I, I, I enjoyed math. These kids like know what they're doing. And I ran away and never looked back. So I just took English classes and philosophy and stuff. And I read a bunch of books and, I, the big thing was, though, I wrote for the Harvard Lampoon, which is that magazine that, you know, Conan O'Brien wrote for and all sorts of Simpsons writers. And I, I identified that was in my college application that I I wanted to join the Lampoon because I knew about it from getting really into comedy in high school. So I was sort of like, that was my target. And I got in my freshman year and that became the sort of defining thing of my college career. I didn't, I didn't know that I wanted to do it professionally. I sort of felt like, uh, I approached it sort of the way that I think, like the U.S. approached Olympic basketball before the Dream Team, where it was like, like we should this should be amateur. Like I, sh- I, I sort of felt like this should be an amateur uh, um, exploit. I should approach this as just I'm doing it because I love it. And who knows, like down the line, if I graduate from college and I want to try to do it professionally, I'll deal with that then. But I really just wanted to do it because it was fun. Um, so I, I there were people on the lampoon staff and there still are who like get agents while they're in college and stuff wow. like, yeah, like Hollywood agents will come and recruit people from the lampoon. And I sort of ignored that and ran away from it. Um, and then after I graduated, I gave myself a year to try to get a job. I decided to move to New York and give myself a year to get a job writing comedy and TV. And if I, did, if I succeeded, great. If not, I was going to go to grad school and become a, an academic. So I, uh, I wrote like a Letterman packet and a Conan packet. This is way back. This is 1997 now. And I got, and I wrote an SNL packet. I got interviewed at SNL in, in August of July or August of 97. And I was paired up. You were paired up in twos to go around and interview with the producers and stuff. And there was a I was paired up with a woman who um, was intimidatingly funny. And I felt like <laughs> I immediately was like, there's no way I'm going to get this job because this woman is way funnier than I am. And it was Tina Fey. And I oh, was right. Well, and uh, so she got hired <laughs> and I didn't. And then um, four months later, they call me in classic SNL fashion. They called me on like a Friday and said, can you start Monday? Oh. And I just I started in January of 98. And that was my first job.
1: Well, you can do that because you're SNL, right? I mean, that's the biggest, like, big D move ever, right? It's like no one will ever say no, even if we make them uproot their life in one day.
0: Yeah, Um, well, it's that. First of all, you're right. But also, for almost everyone, still, it's your first job. Like, they still are, at least in TV, right? They're hiring out of Second City, UCB, the Groundlings, stand-up comedians, wherever, the Lampoon. And so almost everybody they hire is like in their early twenties and has never worked before. So, I mean, they, um, I remember I got my first paycheck from SNL and it was like after taxes and everything, it was like $970. And it was the most money I had ever held in my hand at one time. Like it was, it's just, it was like mind blowing. And the, the idea that you would ever turn a job like that down a, because it's SNL, but B because at the, at the time, most people are hired. Like you can't, you don't know where you're, getting rent money from you're living in new york it's really expensive so yeah it was like it was a i mean i i honestly don't think i would be a comedy writer if they hadn't hired me i don't because i don't think i would have been hired at those other places snl has a big enough staff and was kind of crazy enough to take risks on people like me who had never done anything before um the side the other (laughs) half of that is by the way is that you suck at the job for like a year (laughs) like everyone sucks at it with with a very few exceptions. Um, Some people like figure it out. Some people know what they're doing, but most people stink. And, and um, the show kind of lets you stink. That's it's, it let, they know Lauren knows and the producers know that it's a really weird show. It's really hard to be good at it. So they basically give you like a year to stink and figure it out. And then after a year, they take a look at you to see if, uh, if you should continue or not. So it was i was very fortunate not only that i got a job but that the job specifically let me stink for a year cuz otherwise i would have been fired very quickly
1: <laughs> well and you had some interesting kind of hiccups along the way in in terms of when you started your first show ever was the show after chris farley died your first yeah. weekend update that you were fully in charge of was the first one after 9-11. Yeah. Um, these are big things to handle, especially, I would say, the weekend update. And obviously dealing with the death of a cast member is personally very difficult and professionally hard to go back out there, but handling the tone of returning after 9-11 on weekend update, um, how much pressure did you feel to sort of help people with that?
0: Uh, that was nuts, yeah. So I, I was a sketch writer for three years from like 98 to 01, and then... The, um, Rob Carlock was producing weekend update and he left to go work at friends, I think. Um, and I was sort of like, God, I wonder who they're going to get to produce that segment. That's a big job. And then Mike Shoemaker, the one of the producers was like, Oh, it's going to be you. And um, it wasn't because I was so amazing or, or good or, or incredible or anything, but I, I did because of my, like my rule following sort of responsible um, uh, persona that I had cultivated in a childhood growing up in suburban Connecticut, I was like one of the only uh, comedy writers at the show that had like the ability to do the job. Cause the job was very, it was like producerial instead of just creative. In other words, right. there were like deadlines and there were things you had to actually make and oversee. And kind of like, there was like work that had to be done on a sort of non just goof around level. And there just weren't, there aren't that, it's not a job that's meant for comedy writers (laughs) it's a job that's meant for like responsible people and so he they gave me that job um which was uh scary but i was like i feel like i know how to do this like there's a little staff of three or four writers and you get these setups and you write these jokes then you edit the jokes and you meet with at the time it was tina and jimmy fallon you meet with them throughout the week you do read-throughs of the jokes you pick the jokes you choose the graphics you you just you have to sort of stay on top of a certain a very specific schedule and then 9-11 happened. So my first job running the Silly Fake News segment was the 9-11 show. Uh, so it was very scary, but like everything else at SNL, it's just sink or swim. Like, for better or worse, that show for 40-something years, whatever it is now, has just basically said, like, yeah, just go do it. Like, it, you, might, you might fail, but uh, whatever. It's a live 90-minute show that happens at 1130 at night on a Saturday. Like, just go, you just have to do it. Lauren has a lot of aphorisms about the show and about producing. And one of them is the show doesn't go on because it's ready. It goes on because it's 1130 on Saturday night. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of it was just like, yeah, I don't know. Figure it out. Go figure it out. And so we try to, but you know, there's a dress rehearsal at 10 or I'm sorry, at eight. And we wrote a million jokes about what was happening in the world. And we did all the jokes and people were freaked out. The audience was like freaked out and scared. but also they laughed at certain things and didn't laugh at other things and then at that point it's easy you cut the things they don't laugh at you keep the things they do laugh at and you just do the segment and you and part of the a big part of the new york healing process during that time was stuff like SNL and Letterman coming back on the air and just like yeah we're back it's okay the world is the world is still turning we're still here in new york i mean the craziest thing of all of that was we We managed lauren that's the best producing Lauren ever did in my opinion, which is saying something because he's a first ballot hall of fame producer in t v but he just did such a good job of being a steady hand at that moment. Mm-hmm. He had Giuliani uh mayor of New York uh this is before he had gone crazy, remember uh, he was yes. he came on yes. <laughs> and was incredible gave a monologue, and there was a really funny joke that Lauren wrote where the question was at the time was like, how can anyone be funny, right like that was, everyone, that was the thing everybody in the press was saying, how can we go back to normalcy? How can, how can comedy shows be funny? And Lauren wrote, I believe it was Lauren, wrote this joke where Mayor Giuliani gave this long monologue and Lauren came out and thanked him and everything. And then Ju- Mayor Giuliani said, you know, look, it's important that you get back to work here and do the show just like you always did. And Lauren said, but can we be funny? And Giuliani's response was, why start now? And like that's <laughs> such a good joke. At so that good. moment, it was so healing. And the, the laugh from the audience was cathartic and it was wonderful. And he just, it was such a good job um, that he did. And then two weeks later, there was anthrax in our building. <laughs> two weeks oh, later, yeah. there was anthrax in Tom Brokaw's office and all of 30 Rock was like evacuated and people went to, I went to St. Vincent's Hospital and I got tested for anthrax. And it was so... Crazy! It was just such a bizarre, crazy time. And I think that part of the good thing about that show was like, everyone's too young to know, to be scared about all this stuff. You're too young to really be scared about anthrax in the building. You're too young to worry about whether you're going to do a good job on Weekend Update after 9-11. Everyone's like 26 and like, they just go out and do the show. And now retroactively looking back, it seems absurd to me. That anything on that show was entrusted to people like me, (laughs) who are my age, like it's absurd. But we were too young to be scared, so we just everyone just goes out and does the show, and then you move on, and then like twenty years later, you wake up in a cold sweat because you (laughs) realize that that it was on your shoulders.
1: Yeah, poor Keenan Thompson and uh, Lauren. They're the only ones old enough to know. They're the only (laughs) ones. (laughs) That's right.
0: Yeah, and Lauren. Lauren is now you know what lifetime achievement award has he not earned in his life? Like what could happen now at this point that would, uh, that would really cause him any pain or harm professionally.
1: So you started out with SNL, which is a very big place to start, even though a lot of people start there young. Um, What drew you out to the West coast and the office? And and why did you decide that you were willing to take a shot and leave SNL?
0: Um, Honestly, so it was two things. There's one personal, one professional. The, The professional one was I had been at SNL for six and a half years and I had been producing Weekend Update for three, I guess, three and a half. And it just sort of felt like time to go. Like I was, I gave my 20s to that show. I was hired when I was 21, I think, or 22. And I left when I was 28 or 29. And it's sort of, it is a young person's game, I would say. And you can stay there. It's a little bit of a trap because it's such a good job. You really work like 25 weeks a year. I mean, it's crazy. You get so much time off. Um, the weeks you are working are incredibly stressful, and you're there until four or five in the morning and stuff. But um you get to live in New York and you make decent money and you are have a cool job that people at cocktail parties um, get excited about when they hear about it. <laughs> but I started to feel like it w- was a trap that you could just stay there forever. You could just be there until you were seventy five because the show's not going anywhere. And the lifestyle it provides you is is amazing. And so I started to feel like if I wanted to make a move, it was time. And then the personal thing was I was dating my then girlfriend and now wife um, long distance. She was in L.A. writing for shows in L.A. And we, I was like I earned a lot of like JetBlue frequent flyer miles <laughs> by flying back and forth. And, it, and we were like heading towards getting married. And it sort of felt like in order to, to have a shot at it working, one of us had to move and it made way more sense for me to move from New York to LA because every other job in show right. business basically is in LA so it was a combination of those two things and i was very sad to leave but i think I, I don't i i think i did it exactly right i think i left at exactly the right time i got i got in everything i could possibly get out of that show and then i got super lucky because the year i left is the year greg daniels was adapting the office and i met with him And sort of felt like I was a huge fan of the British version of the office. And I felt like it was, the show was never going to work. It was going to be a huge (laughs) debacle and a huge failure, but I met Greg and I thought to myself, well, that guy knows what he's doing and he's going to teach me how to write. So at the very least, we're going to do six episodes of this show. And this guy is going to teach me how to write um, long form TV comedy. And then I'll have, I'll get off on the right foot. And I, was correct about that and and incorrect about the show not working. So it was sort of the best of both worlds.
1: Well, you were correct about it not working for like one season where people were confused and they weren't sure what they wanted and <laughs> right. whether it was going to – and it's fascinating because it feels like that was the same with, um, with Parks and Recreation, which was the show you co-created after The Office. Both of them had that year or so where people just critically acclaimed and people just weren't on board yet. How do you figure out the pivot to say like – push through that criticism or, or maybe not enough eyeballs and then figure out what you want to keep the same. People will just get it if they watch more and what needs to change.
0: Um, some of it is luck, right? Like the office, um, the, the first, the, so both of those shows, the office and parks and rec did six episode first seasons, which is very rare. Usually it's at least 13. Um, the office did six because that's all that NBC would commit to. Cause it was such a weird endeavor and then Parks and Rec was going to do 13, but Amy Poehler got pregnant and we made the executive decision that we would wait for her uh, to do the role because we sort of felt like nobody else could do it. And so we ended up having to cut our order down from 13 to 6 voluntarily, which is a could have been a really dumb move. But we felt like getting Amy Poehler is a long-term decision. And like the number of episodes in your first season is a short-term decision. And we went with the long-term decision, which was the right call. So some of it is luck, right? Like the first six episodes of The Office, um, where the first episode was pretty similar to one of the episodes from The British Show. And it was very nebulous. And it was very unlike anything that was on TV before. And critics watched it. And they said, this is a dumb rip-off. It stinks. It's it's bad. (laughs) Goodbye if they had watched the next five episodes, they would have seen five entirely new premises, uh, five entirely new scripts. And, and they would have seen, and they did see, uh, They maybe they just didn't care. But what they saw was like a show that was like, that had real, that had a real like philosophy behind it, had real, a, a real like amount of thought had been put into it. Really? It had been really carefully considered and, and reorganized for America. The one thing it didn't have yet was um, we hadn't, written to Steve Carell's strength. We were mm-hmm. we had made Steve Carell's character, Michael Scott, t- still too much like David Brent from The British Show and not enough like we weren't playing to his strengths, basically. And And the luck that I'm talking about is that the summer after those six episodes aired, the 40-year-old virgin came out and mm-hmm. suddenly Steve Carell was like this movie star. And not only was he a movie star, he was a movie star for being a kind of person, which was an incredibly sympathetic, kind, sweet person uh, in that movie. And, and it was suddenly like, Oh, this is how we have to change the show. And by the way, this is all Greg Daniels. Like this was his call. And he was totally right. He was like, we have to take 20% of that guy who was on camera in that movie. And we have to put it that into the character without fundamentally changing the dynamics of the show. Right. And the writer, okay. the other writers resisted it because we were all like, nah, the British show's so pure. And it's like, it's so like, you know, bleak and miserable. And we like, we love how <laughs> bleak and miserable it is. And so we didn't want to do that. But Greg was like, no, trust me, this is what we have to do. So that, so some of that, so there was luck involved with the 40 year old virgin coming out. There was further luck involved with just that movie making a hundred million dollars or whatever it was meant that NBC was more likely to give us another shot because suddenly they had this movie star under contract. So it was like, yeah, we'll give you six or 13 more episodes or whatever. Um, And at the time, Kevin Riley was running NBC and he just loved the office and he loved Greg. And he thought like, I'm going to put my reputation on the line and give this guy more episodes. And like all of those, those things are all very rare and very fortunate. And so, so like a lot of it is just luck. A lot of it is just, we got, we got very lucky that things worked out in the, the way that they did. And by the way, there's more luck involved because the next year, season two, when we came back, the show My Name is Earl came out, and NBC mm-hmm. was like, this is our big new show. And it was a big hit right away. And they had that show on at, I think, 8, and we were on at 8.30. And so their giant rating like bled over into our half hour, and more people started sampling The Office, and that gave The Office a boost. So, like some like it's, it's maddening when you think back on it, because what you realize is there's a bunch of good shows out there that could have lasted a lot longer if they had gotten lucky instead of unlucky. And we just happened to get lucky on the office. And then, you know, with parks and rec, it wasn't exactly the same, but it wasn't that different. We basically, we did six episodes that most people didn't like by the time the six of the first six were done. We had done a bunch of corrections on the character and, and on, on the way that the show was written and we limped into a season two, and by the time season two came around, we just wrote it better and figured it out more, and and um, and it sort of just worked out. It's a uh, it's it's really frustrating to think about. I mean, in in this case, it's great, but it, sometimes it can be frustrating to think about how much of show business just comes down to luck and good fortune because it's something you can't control.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and as a writer and as a showrunner, as a co-creator, how difficult is it to acquiesce when you had a vision of one thing and you realize either it's not going to work and that's probably easier to adjust, or if you're holding fast to the idea that it would work if people just got it. Um, And then someone steps in and says, no, because Steve Carell is inherently likable and Ricky Gervais is funny because he's not sometimes. Right. Yeah. yeah. So so like, but like at that moment, you had this idea of what, where you wanted to go with it. Do you have to sort of have that quality of being able to pivot uh, in order to make it in this business?
0: Yeah, I think you do. And and like there's a there's a difference between a pivot and a and a sort of like sort of like a mercenary decision to just follow <laughs> right. whatever the audience wants, you know, like that won't work. If you just say whatever you want, I'll give it to you. People can sort of sniff that out. Audiences are very savvy. And if you try to game the system by just like by doing something that's sort of cynical or um or is just like pandering, I think generally speaking it doesn't work but you what you do have to do is be self-critical first of all and and analyze what you're doing constantly to make sure that you're still doing what you want and that you're not ignoring something that might be better. And then also you have to be willing to you have to be willing to admit you were wrong. And th- like that's that's the hardest one of the hardest things for humans to do in general is just admit you were wrong. Like I I've often believed Uh, and said that I that if humans had a better capacity for admitting their own failures, the world would would improve like a thousand percent. It's so much of so much conflict and so much misery and so much fighting and so much online nonsense comes from the from people's just basic inability to go like, you know what? Uh, You're right. I'm sorry. I I blew that. (laughs) So it's just something that never happens. So in the creative world, like it's a, it's sometimes a difference between failure and success because you have a certain idea of what you want and you execute it. And if it doesn't work, your choices are continue to fail or admit that you didn't have a perfect idea and come up with a better one or amend your idea. And there are different ways to do that. One way that I personally really like to do it is, is by not, this seems like a crazy thing to say, but I like to let other people make a lot of the decisions. Like instead of saying, for example, uh, so there's a casting director I work with named Alison Jones, who's wonderful. Um, And she and her sort of number two guy, uh, this guy, Ben Harris, are to my mind, the best casting directors in comedy. And and the proof is in the shows that they've cast. They cast The Office and Parks and Rec and Arrested Development and Curb Your Enthusiasm and uh, all of Judd Apatow's movies. Like they're they're just wonderful. They're so good. Veep and everything. And what I like to do with them is say, listen, this is the design of the character, right? This character, let's say, is, is in her 30s, and she's a South Asian woman, and this is her description. But here's what's important about this character. What's important is that the character has this personality trait and has this certain defining characteristic. If you find a really funny person who is 50 and from Brazil instead of 35 and from India or Pakistan, then I'll change the character. Like, I, right. like that part of it is unimportant. What is more important is the dynamic that this character fills within the cast. So, And then they go out and they find the best people who they think fit those descriptions. And then I just change, if I need to, I just change the, the, the basic backstory of the character. So that is a way to like hedge against being wrong. Because if you if you're too particular about the thing that you're doing and you don't allow for any kind of nuance or any kind of um, variation on the theme, you are just limiting yourself and you're making it you're making your task that much harder. And so one way to guard against your the human, the the fallible human process of just like getting everything wrong is to not be so rigid in what you're looking for, in my opinion.
1: That's what that's my point of view. That absolutely makes sense, and it also reminds me of you know you were you were doing an interview, you we're talking about Harris Whittles, um, who's no longer with us, who was a writer on Parks and Rec, watching Mad Men differently from you. And you said <laughs> oh you, yeah, you can't write for the rafters, you can't write for the critics. Um But also, you know, one of the tenets of when I did Second City was respect your audience's intelligence, you know, don't play down to them, bring them up to you. And if they don't get it, they might still find it funny, because they're like, "Ooh, that was smart. I don't get it. But it's funny, because those people are smart. <laughs> so, When have you sort of struggled the most with that balance of make it enjoyable for the people who aren't way up here? but also give it all those layers that make you interested in doing it. Cause obviously shows like the good place are so layered. There's so many Easter eggs in there. There's so many things that are going to pay off later. Um, but how do you make sure it's enjoyable right now for people who aren't getting all those things?
0: Well um, yeah. So the good place has a lot of sort of dense ideas in it. Um, it's got a lot of philosophy in it and um and it's also you know it's set in the afterlife so there's already a sort of um you're already sort of buying into this big premise and there's there's a lot of like there's a lot of stuff going on um but i, I sort of feel like you have to you the the first and most important thing in writing tv is you just have to write a good story and the and that means like the actual events that occur and the actual characters who are participating in those events just have to be interesting and compelling and funny and those that that's true no matter what the the kind of show is right it's true for the silliest like multicam comedy it's and it, all the way to like the most complex dense intricate weird thing that anyone's doing on the in the deepest recesses of of premium cable, you just have to have a good story. If you don't have a good story, people get bored. So that's the first thing. The first thing is just to make sure that the story, the actual story we're telling is fun and compelling. We have a list on uh, at the Good Place Writers Room. We have a list of six things up on our, on our like, wall that every episode has to do uh, in order for it to, to, like, qualify, basically. And the first one is, um, it's, it's really, it, the phrase is questions. That we have to answer in the affirmative and question number one is is it funny and like that's the that's just the most basic thing if you're writing a half hour tv show uh half hour comedy for nbc in the year 2018 and it's not funny then what are you doing (laughs) you're doing you're you have the wrong job like (laughs) so part of it is just being that simple and straightforward by saying Regardless of what, you know, philosophers were like name checking or what kind of weird, dense, (laughs) complicated ideas we're interested in exploring. If this if the episode isn't funny, then no one's going to care. Like people are going to get I think in addition to being savvy, audiences are also um, very easily bored. Because we're you know we're 80 years deep into the history of television at this point, and there aren't a lot of stories that haven't been told. You're, whatever story you're telling in a given episode, it's been told before in some version. And so, if you don't make it funny and entertaining, people are going to not watch it, and they they have a million other options for how to spend their time. I mean, quite literally a million. My 10 year old son uh, plays almost like watches almost no television. He plays MLB the show and he, and he like watches you like basketball YouTubers. Like those are to him. Like when I was a kid, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, like my only entertainment was television. I watched the golden girls and I watched empty nest yep. and I watched all these shows that like had nothing.
1: WKRP in Cincinnati. Which yes, and they were liked, great and I've shows. I've seen but like a like hundred episodes. Like, why? yeah. <laughs> and,
0: but they like, I mean, I was a, I was a, like a nine year old kid in suburban Connecticut watching empty nest and like, It had that show had nothing for me, but (laughs) it was a story and it was on television and it had jokes and there were people laughing at it. And so that's what I wanted to watch. But now my 10 year old son has there are basketball YouTubers who have like, you know, whose videos are watched by millions of people who are specifically making jokes about like, will Paul George go back to the Thunder? And that's what he's interested in. And we (laughs) didn't have that when we were kids. So if you so the point of all of this is just to say, like, you've got to be really entertaining. You've got to be really funny. You've got to work really hard to make your stories good and entertaining, or people will just absolutely flee because they don't, there's nothing keeping them watching your show, except your show. There's no, they, they are the opposite of a captive audience. And so um, that's, that's just the, that's just the basic rule is like just work really hard to make the stories good. The characters good and interesting and the and the, and the jokes good or you're doomed.
1: You mentioned that there's a million things to watch. I struggle with that. I I haven't watched any of the shows that I'm supposed to have. I haven't watched Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad or the – Walking Dead or Westworld, like any show that, like Mad Men is pretty much the only show that everyone says is required viewing that I've actually had the time to watch. There's just too many things. And like I'll be in a hotel room and I'll just watch seven straight episodes of The New Queer Eye. Cause I'm like, this is easy. Just keep, <laughs> just keep hitting play next and it's fine. Um, so how do you choose? Because you specifically, you're busy with your own shows and then you probably want to know, like, what is the industry doing right now? Where are there things that are groundbreaking that you can build off of or things that you're just going to find an influential and inspiring how do you choose
0: um, you do it by word of mouth a little bit um, you know when the show really grabs writers that usually means it's worth watching like if, if, a, if you know if a whole bunch of TV writers are all in awe of a certain show that means that show is is good it's right. almost you're almost even if you don't personally love it as much as they do it's going to be worth watching So some of it is just, you know, my wife is also a TV writer. Um, She wrote on the show New Girl for for five years. She now has her own show that's going to be on this fall um, called Single Parents on ABC. And so she she has her community of people and I have my community of people and they overlap a little bit. But one of us will come home and go, you know, everyone is talking about blank. We should probably check it out. And we found a lot of good shows that way. I mean, at some level, that's why we started watching Mad Men. We have a friend... Who's also a writer who like very early on like after the third episode was like that's the show and we were like huh really and we started watching it and we're like oh yeah she's right that that show's amazing <laughs> um but we found glow that way like i don't think i would have necessarily watched glow but i I'll, a whole bunch of writers that i respect and admire said it was really good and we started watching it and it's great um so it's, that's usually the way it goes i mean Interestingly, I would say my wife, being also a comedy writer, almost everything we watch is a drama. It's very rare that we find a comedy that we like. Um, something about it's a little bit probably like you you when you work all day in any industry and then you try to engage in another aspect of that industry. Like we just. We just are too familiar with it it's like you yeah. see the matrix code that's behind it a little bit and
1: I don't often watch sports right when I'm done with my three hour sports radio show
0: right yeah like else. you just need a little bit of a break and when you spend eight 10 12 hours a day talking about comedy stories it's hard to sit down and watch a comedy story mm-hmm. so almost everything we watch is is a drama um, and but you're not wrong like we're all I've said this before I'll say it again we are all now doomed. We are all going to die with thousands of hours of unwatched prestige television on our DVRs. And there's nothing we can do about it. It's happening too quickly. There's too much of it. It's like a crazy avalanche and we'll never catch up. I've never watched The Americans. I have been told by thousands of people that The Americans (laughs) is like the greatest television drama ever written and acted and directed. And I'm desperate to watch it. But now it's such a weight on my shoulders that I just, it's like the thought of starting it is so daunting, right. you know? And by the time I, if I ever do, which I really want to, I really do want to watch it. But if I then spend the next three months, let's say, watching the Americans in that three months, there will be five new shows that yeah. I should be watching Absolutely. and am not. Right. And we're just all doomed. It's like, it's, it, there's it's too the much. It's
1: way about books too. It, there's just too much stuff, but it also, you know, you mentioned that you're watching all the dramas. I have had a lot of trouble lately Watching serious things. Um, I know you wrote an episode of Black Mirror. People keep saying to watch Black Mirror. I can't even get through one episode of The Handmaid's Tale because I've read the book <laughs> and it feels too real. And this writer that I love from The New Yorker, Gia Tolentino, wrote about how we were all saying 2016 was the worst year ever. And that's just because we didn't understand that they're going to continue to get worse because right. our capacity to deal with misfortune and terribleness doesn't change. We're all the same human beings that we've always been built to be, but our ability to take in all of that misfortune is greater than ever because the internet and social media and everything is like constantly bombarding us with awfulness and we can't handle it any better than before. And so I feel like for me, I'm, I'm moving away from drama and anything serious, anything that feels too real. Cause I'm getting too much of that. Just the rest of my day all the time. Are you not struggling or like working on black mirror? Was that cathartic, or did it make you dive worse into a hole? Uh,
0: A little of both, I would say. Um, I am right with you, by the way. (laughs) It's not easy. And I I watched season one of The Handmaid's Tale, which was excellent, and then we started to watch season two, and about halfway through the first episode, I was like, this feels like a documentary, and it's really freaking me out, and I need to take a break. And so we bailed on that, and we'll pick it up at some other time. Um, probably, but um, I think that in, in a, in a best-case scenario, working on something like Black Mirror or watching it feels cathartic, right? You feel understood. You feel like the, the, you're not crazy, that the universe is is like engaged in a sort of dark time, and, it, and it, you feel less alone in the world because you feel like other people share your bleak outlook on, on things. That's the best-case scenario. In the worst-case scenario, it's like a feedback loop where you're like, I'm miserable. This show is making me more miserable. I'm going to keep watching the show because I like how miserable it makes me. Right. And you just end up in this kind of crazy spiral. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what the difference is. I don't know why version A happens versus version B. But in the case of Black Mirror, I, I don't I'm really not a uh, social media guy except for Twitter. I don't have a Facebook page. I don't do Snapchat or, or Instagram or any of that stuff. I don't even know if Snapchat's still exists. But uh, I only do Twitter and I kind of hate myself for doing it because I think Twitter is a terrible website that um, enables Nazis. And I've, I keep thinking I should l- leave. Hard. But yeah. I also I also like sometimes I think, well, I, I'm a, I want to be kept abreast of the things that are happening in the world. And Twitter is really good for that. You get news very quickly and you can sort through it very quickly. And there are journalists that I admire and trust who give me stories and keep me up to date. And I feel like a social responsibility to stay on it while also hating myself for being on it. Mm-hmm. But that the Black Mirror episode I wrote was specifically about the effect of social media, you would say, on human lives and existence. It was a very bleak story about a, about a world, a sort of parallel world to ours where everyone has a sort of five-star rating as a person and your life is your life is determined in part by your rating. So if you want to fly first class on an airplane, you can only do that if your rating is like a 4.75 or above or whatever. And if you're below a 4, you can't rent the nicest car at the car rental place and all this sort of stuff. And as a result, what has happened is everyone has just buried their actual true sort of like emotions and instincts because no one wants to bark or scream or yell or get upset. Everybody has a very plastic sort of Stepford Wife type smile on his or her face at all times because they just want a good rating. And it's about a woman who a series of events occurs to her and she kind of goes on a spiral and goes down the drain. And I liked, it wasn't our story. So I wrote it with Rashida Jones, who's an old friend of mine, and we wrote it only because Charlie Brooker, who created the show and is the sort of genius behind it, um, reached out to Rashida saying, like, would you ever want to write one? And then Rashida asked me if I wanted to write it with her. And so it was his story and it was his sort of outline. And we just sort of executed the screenplay. I found that experience very cathartic because I feel like there, the message of it was very righteous, which is
1: right.
0: which is, was two things, really. Number one, if you rely too much on other people's opinions, you're going to do your own sort of personality a disservice and number two was we are all way too um, into our computers and our screens and we care too much and we are putting too much energy we're directing too much of our energy onto our online personas and that the combination of those two sort of very simple but very righteous observations made it made the experience feel cathartic to me
1: yeah you know when you're 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 pulling friends from various places that you've worked with before and and getting to uh, participate in all these different shows and outlets. Um, you're bound to stumble across some some pretty sticky situations. And for you, um, you've worked with Louis C.K. Uh, you've worked with Kevin Spacey on SNL. Uh, Terry Crews is on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Aziz Ansari, obviously, master of none and Parks and Rec. Watching all of this go down, and all of those people are very different, right, whether they're a victim or they're a perpetrator and, and to what level – um, has it made you change the way you view all the people that you work with, the way you run your shows? Like, has it made you change anything about yourself, this sort of reckoning of what you may have known was a little bit going on but feels much bigger now than ever?
0: Well, that, that I think has happened for everybody out here, regardless of whether you've actually worked with anybody who's gone through this uh, from any direction. Like, I think everyone is now dramatically reevaluating sort of Everything, (laughs) just this like all of human behavior, all of Hollywood. I mean, Uh, for so long, obviously from the beginning, right, of, of Hollywood, Hollywood is about money and power and fame. And when you give specifically men the ability to control money, power and fame, those men do terrible things. It just is. It's always been true. It's been true since since humans evolved. You know, it's been true for hundreds of thousands of years, men who control money, power and fame in any way, shape, or form, will treat other people terribly. And so Hollywood has, has been this, like, really particularly virulent Petri dish for examining the effects of money, power, and fame on men, specifically the way men treat women. And so that this what has happened in the last two years, really, has been a scientist came into the lab and looked in the Petri dish and went, what the hell is happening? And, and did a bunch of uh, journalism about it. And so... It, it, what what has been particularly upsetting, I think, is the knowledge that for all of us, everyone out here, that at some level we were complicit in this. And that doesn't mean that we were actively enabling it or or whatever. It means we were all aware of it and no one did anything. And, you know, like just as one example, in the, the Kevin Spacey case, I was at SNL. He hosted I think he hosted only once when I was there. Um, but when he was there. He was very inappropriate with a number of young men, and it was just like a joke. It was a joke around the writer's room and around the, the show because he, it was like Kevin Spacey, first of all, Kevin Spacey is not, I don't we don't know what his sexuality is, but it does not, he is not a straight heterosexual man. That was what everyone knew. And every, and by the way, it wasn't just us though. Everybody knew it. Everyone in town knew it. Like there were, there were magazine profiles of him that, that basically outed him at the time. And, but also like he was being really, and and I don't know the details of any of it. I just remember one person in particular being like, he like was a little grabby when I just went to his dressing room and, and it was sort of like, everyone just sort of laughed it off. And what no one thought at the time was, this is bad. That's predatory behavior. And, um, and we need to like, we should say something to someone. And that lack of sort of like stepping up and, and saying something is just so was so endemic and was so completely, um, like just, just blanketed the town and no, everyone knew a bunch of this stuff and nobody did anything about it. And it's such, it's so sad to think about now. And so I personally just felt a certain amount of, Sadness and a certain amount of shame and embarrassment about the fact that like, you know, I knew some of this stuff and I just sort of did what everybody else did, which is like kind of looked the other way. And, you know, all of these stories are different. All of the people are different. All of the events are different. But this, the thing that is that, that runs through all of them is everyone was scared. Everybody was scared to say something. Everybody was scared to be the person who stood up and said, I'm not going to work with that person or, hey, this happened to me and that's not okay. And the best thing to come out of all of this is I think we've swung completely the other way now. And, you know, that has its own problems, obviously. But now the onus is on the people who were committing the offenses instead of the people who are the victims of the offenses. And thank God, like it's so long overdue and it's such a, it's such a relief in some way to say like, this is, this is a cleansing where the whole industry is going through this massive self check, gut check, cleansing about the way that people behave when they have money, power, fame and status. And like, that's, it's, you know, it's 80, it's a hundred years overdue and it's, I, I mean, for all of the pain and suffering and misery that has come out of it, like, you have to believe that the next hundred years will be better than the last hundred years in this regard, and that's sort of the point.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Aziz revelations were really muddled and, and definitely not particularly well handled or written about, nowhere near Harvey Weinstein or or the other ones, but they were nonetheless, they made me and other people uncomfortable um, but Master of None is also one of my all-time favorite shows, and it feels like we can't have the same punishments for everybody that gets caught up in this. It needs to be about the actual facts and and, and, and specifics of that person. Um, does it feel like there is a future for that show? Does it feel like Aziz is figuring out a response to how to properly address all of that went down?
0: Um, you know, they he, so Aziz and Alan Yang, who created it with him, were already unsure of whether there would be a season three before any of this happened. They were sort of, they finished season two, they had other things they wanted to pursue. And so they were sort of off already doing those things. So I don't, I honestly don't know um, there, you know, I, I, and I don't, I haven't talked to Aziz specifically about whether he is formulating some kind of response or any of that stuff. Um, I, I would imagine he is, he, the, Aziz is a very thoughtful person. And what I would imagine is, has been happening is he has spent a lot of time thinking about this and mulling it over and considering it and thinking about himself. That's what that show really was. It was Mm a, that show was pitched, um, Aziz and Alan pitched it as, they called it comedy investigative journalism, where (laughs) the idea was like, we're going to take some issue and that issue might be, um, you know, immigration or or like our parents or whatever. And we're going to just investigate it. We're going to pretend we're investigative journalists and we're going to just in like, take it apart and look at it. And so that's the kind of brain that he has and Alan too. And I would imagine that that brain is now trained on his own life and what has happened to him and what he thinks of it all. And, you know, I don't know. I I honestly don't know if he'll ever respond or what he would say or do if he did respond to what happened. But, um, But I would imagine that that's what's going on right now is he's just being thoughtful about it.
1: Hey, everybody, don't forget to go to ESPN and Apple Podcasts and subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain so you always have the latest episode. Don't forget to rate and review it as well and tell all your friends how awesome it is. I loved reading about your respect for lines and uh your... Anger when people either drive on the shoulder and try to cut back in or people, you know, cause I'm the same way. I have this, I have this very like principled idea of like, we're all in this together. We've accepted these things. You are not better, right? I like got in a screaming match with a French man at, at Versailles after waiting in two, two and a half hours and he tried to slide in with his kids and he pretended <laughs> not to speak English. And then I was like, fine, I'll say it in French. Um, but. You know you've even said you're embarrassed when you break a rule which I think is a little bit further than than I go when it comes to those things right um, we're currently sort of in chaos manners that are at an all time low uh, what are you doing how are you handling that as someone who is so deeply principled uh,
0: uh, well I think there's two there's two different versions of of respecting lines or boundaries or rules right the the first the first set of um, of sort of principles is if if there's a rule um that everybody has to follow the rule that's the basic idea right if if the rule is don't drive on the shoulder when you're in traffic, then no one is allowed to do that, and it doesn't matter whether you are in a BMW or whether you're in a 1987 Toyota Tercel. Like the people in the BMWs tend to think that the rules are different for them, and they tend to pull out and say, like, "Well, I'm not. My time's valuable, and I'm going to pull out onto the shoulder and I'm going to cruise past everybody because I'm awesome." And that is, to me, an unforgivable sin. I think that the <laughs> the the part of society The very basic sort of bonding mechanism of society is the idea that the rules apply to everyone equally. And then there's a second thing that's happening. And the second thing that's happening is there are people in the country right now who are being what you would say extraordinarily uncivil. Um, They are um, there are Nazis marching in Charlottesville and there are people who are calling for entire groups of people based on their religion or their ethnicity to be essentially banned from America, which, side note, that's not how America works <laughs> on a very right. basic level. Right. That's not how America works. And But there are people who are like, no, that is, that is what America is. They're just completely changing the definition of what America is to suit their own personal beliefs. And, and then what's happening is the people who are getting upset about that are being tisked by journalists and by people in the media and by people who have those virulent, unpleasant worldviews, and they, they are saying you have to be civil. What happened to civility? And my feeling is, and I think this is pretty logical, is saying Nazis are cool and saying I'm angry that you're saying that Nazis are cool aren't the same thing, right? So like the uncivility that comes from rising up against racism, let's say. Is very different from the uncivility of racism. So the, there, it's a it's a tricky uh, it's a tricky thing. But you, ha- I believe that what has to happen is we all have to follow the rules as they are laid out. And then, but also when one group of people is particularly uncivil about something in a way that seems counter to, to logic and reason and history and the Bill of Rights and other stuff it's okay to then be uncivil in response. And I'm frankly getting a little tired of like editorials. There was one in the LA times recently that was sort of like, listen, if we don't have civility, we don't have anything, but it was directed at the people who were responding to the uncivility, which is just nuts to me. And so it's like, there's a difference in my mind between rules and between sort of the freedom of expression that is required to keep powerful people in check and so I, you know, I will always follow the rules. I, I've, I, I've said this before, like I drive the speed limit and when I do catch myself speeding, I get upset at myself. <laughs> and I, and I, I was a kid who I got nervous in college because if we were, I knew that the noise, the like noise ordinance was like music has to be turned down at 1am. And I would kind of at a party, I would, if I was at a party at 1 a.m. and the music was still loud, I would kind of sneak over to the stereo and kind of quietly turn it down. <laughs> like, oh my I god! Was, yeah, you I are know. so much worse I'm,
1: than me. I've, I rescind my my statement that I'm principled. Apparently, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, a heathen would, who speeds. I mean, part, and... of it, part of it was like that's the
0: rule, and part of it was I'm scared to be caught. Like I don't, I right. don't. I, I was like, we're I understand what this rule is. And then when we're breaking the rule, I don't like to play loud music in our backyard after a certain <laughs> hour of the day. If we have friends over, or we're having like a barbecue or something, because right. I keep thinking about how and how annoyed our neighbors might be. But right, it's not so, as much just like, about
1: getting caught. It's empathy, too.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a feeling of like, I don't want other people to be upset. That's sort of what it is. And so I get that for sure. Yeah. So uh, so I have those instincts and I act on them. However, I also curse a lot on Twitter at people (laughs) who are telling me to be civil because I believe that uncivility is not only okay; I believe it is called for. When basic human rights are being violated, and so I walk both. I, I walk on both sides of that line. I happily walk on the "I'm going to turn the music down at 1 a.m." side because that's the rule line, and I will also absolutely walk on the line of like I'm going to call you a bunch of really unpleasant names <laughs> if you if you try to ban a religion or an ethnic yeah. minority from this yeah. country.
1: It's that. It's that. You know, I saw someone say, someone was asked why they were protesting, and they asked him, "Do you think your protest is really going to change our country?" And he said. I hope my protests change our country, but I'm protesting as much so that the country doesn't change me. And it's such a great way to say it, but it's also a reminder that there's this desire to not be civil in times when others aren't aren't being civil, but you don't want to lose what you stand for either in the pursuit of pushing back against people who are bad. It's really it's a it's a conundrum for all of us right now. Um yeah. We are running out of time, so I have a couple quick ones. I have to ask you about Ken Tremendous. Uh, this, of course, your online pseudonym first appeared on Fire Joe Morgan's sports blog, and then eventually you revealed that to be you and, and your Twitter name and everything else. Um, why was it important to you to have that outlet? You were already a successful TV writer. Why have this sports blog outlet, and why Ken Tremendous?
0: Um- so that blog was written predominantly by me and my friends uh, Dave King and Alan Yang, who later created Master of None, and uh, Matt Murray, and then a couple other people. All we're all we were all TV writers, and it was it just came from being annoyed at at um, at baseball broadcasting and baseball journalism. And this was around the time that Moneyball came out, uh, the book. And um, I can't remember whether we predated it or it had come out before us, but either way. It was like it, it, Moneyball gave a, a popular voice to a thing that we had all known and felt for a long time, which was just people are so wrong all the time about baseball and <laughs> um, and about what matters in baseball. And there's and there doesn't seem to be any accountability like there were people would make outrageously wrong statements about baseball t- statistics. And then <clears throat> when they were proven to be wrong. Um, nothing would happen they wouldn't like they wouldn't issue a mea culpa they wouldn't they wouldn't get fired they just kept issuing wrong opinions over and over again and so it was really just a cathartic outlet for us to just complain and we we were anonymous at the beginning because um, we were all TV writers and we didn't want our angry uh, profanity laden um, complaining to in any way reflect on the shows that we were writing for or the or the networks that had hired us or anything. And also, by the way, we didn't think anyone would ever read it. It was, it was completely, (laughs) uh, it was completely for ourselves to just goof around. In fact, it started because my friend Dave King wrote an email once that said, you know, we send each other so many emails complaining about Tim McCarver or whoever. Um, If we just started a blog, we could just post stuff on the blog and then we could all read it and it would be funny. And we were like, all right, let's do it. So that was the that was the beginning of it. And then um, Will Leach at Deadspin somehow found it. I don't know how, and started linking to it from Deadspin, which then made it sort of take off. Right. At that point, when once we got, you know, we went from like a hundred readers a day to like, you know, well over ten thousand pretty quickly. And at that point, I started to get a ethical tingling in my brain, which was bas- which basically amounted to like the accused should have the right to know their accusers and we were still anonymous and we, I right. sort of felt like it's not okay to be anonymous anymore like the internet part of the, a big part of the reason the internet stinks is because people can be anonymous for way too long and can say terrible things under the cloak of anonymity and so I sort of felt I I proffered it to the other guys that maybe we should come clean about who we were and they all agreed and they had been feeling similar things. So one day we were just like, okay, sorry about this. We never thought anyone would read this blog. Here's who we are. And then immediately <laughs> then it became a story because I had already been Moe's on the office. And so right. it was, so Will Leach wrote a piece for Desmond that said, one of my favorite sports bloggers is Moe's from the office. <laughs> <laughs> so then it sort of, that had its own repercussions in terms of, you know, who read the blog and whatever. Um, so that that was the that was the sort of basic story. Um, the name Kendra Menes was literally just a name. I I was I took a creative writing class in college, and I was trying to think of a name for a character, and that name popped into my head, and I just thought it was funny, so I just used it. I um, love it. Yeah, that's all. That's there was no, nothing else behind it.
1: So you basically were just super successful, and you wanted to steal a sports blogging job from an earnest wannabe sportscaster. Uh, <laughs> well, I you know, we never line. like
0: <laughs> we sold we we spent our own money on the on the hosting site and and the domains and stuff, and we put ads on the site at one point, like Google Ads, to raise enough money to to pay for it. And I was immediately like, "No, this stinks! Like, we shouldn't. <laughs> this should be purely be a hobby. We thought of it as like a public service, almost, of like." we are going to make jokes about how bad baseball sports writing is as a public service for people out there who want to read about that. And that was the end of it. And so um, we got rid of the ads eventually. And then, and it was just like a pure hobby, which made it really fun because we didn't have to answer to anybody. We didn't have to, we could post whenever we wanted. It wasn't, there was nothing curated about it. It was just our pure sort of um, baseball writing ids on display.
1: That's great. Well, Before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does, but nobody expects.
0: didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition.
1: That's right, the Spanish Inquisition. The questions that I <laughs> ask everyone. Number one, what's the natural talent you wish you were gifted with?
0: Oh, music, easily. Uh, instrumental music.
1: You can sing okay, but you can't play?
0: I can... Sort of hold a tune in a way that won't embarrass anybody, but I cannot play any instrument. I wish I could play every one of them, guitar, drums, trumpet, tuba, anything. I can't play any of them.
1: Ditto. Number two, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one.
0: Uh, uh, In the Aeroplane Over the Sea by Neutral Milk Hotel.
1: Okay. That's a new one. I've not heard that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Number three, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be?
0: Uh, wow! Um, one day, mm-hmm. sun up to sundown. Um, uh, Tiffany Haddish.
1: Oh my gosh, that would be unique, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and also, I love that you pick someone of the opposite gender because people almost always pick their same sex. And I'm like, but the first thing should be, wouldn't you want to see what's what it's like? What's the point of that? Like yeah, You, you like, know, you know, at yeah. least of,
0: like half of what their exactly. lives are like. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: number four. What's the most scared you've ever been?
0: Uh, probably the first day I went to work at SNL
1: really that scared like it was physical they have no um
0: they have no there's no like uh um process for welcoming people at least there wasn't when i was there (laughs) they told me to show up at a certain time i did i waited three hours no one else showed up i was (sighs) like maybe this is an elaborate prank i don't know what's going on finally they they told me to show up at 10 and then the first person showed up at one and then they were like oh yeah right you start today uh here. I think he used this as your office. Good luck. And that was literally it. And then then four hours later, no one had told me anything. And then four hours later, I was like, so what happens? Like, what's the schedule? And they, um, one of the writers was like, well, in in about 20 minutes, we have the pitch. And I was like, what's the pitch? And they were like, oh, will you go and you pitch (laughs) sketch ideas to the host? No one had told me this, by the way. And the host was Samuel L. Jackson. And so 20 minutes later, without knowing I had to do this, I was in a room with Samuel L. Jackson and Lauren Michaels and the entire staff and cast of the show going like, I have an idea where you would play a mailman. Like, I don't even know what I said. (laughs) Uh, And it was just like, that's the deal with that show. They just, you're thrown into the deep end of the pool. It's like pledging. I feel like they want you to
1: get super uncomfortable just so that you're on your toes yeah and i and
0: i understand that saying that the most scared i've ever been was my first day of work at snl is a is a from a position of extraordinary privilege i get that for sure but it also was super scary (laughs) uh
1: number five what's the most embarrassed you've ever been
0: uh well it's either that same day or (laughs) um (laughs) uh i when i was like um nine or something or ten I think I was in fourth grade and we went, we had this, like our elementary school went to this camp and did like a two to two day, like sleepover at this camp as a class. And I have a complete, uh, I've, I've no sense of direction. Um, the, The one, there's a character on the, on the good place named Chidi. And he has, I gave him my problem and I called it directional insanity in the show, which is what it feels like. Like I have no idea. I lived in Manhattan for eight years and got lost routinely and on a grid because I have no sense of direction. And so on this camp out, um, I got lost. It was a tiny little campground and I got so lost, like every, all the adults had to come find me. It was like a search <laughs> party. And I was just like wandering around in the woods. Like I had no idea where I was. And I I was, I was, thought I was going to die, I think. But then when they found me, it was just so humiliating because all the other kids like, were like, you got lost and had to be rescued.
1: <laughs> yeah, you ruined our whole day of camp. That's um... right. <laughs> Wow, well, number six. What would you consider your biggest failure?
0: Um, oh boy! Um, again, this is going to be a, from a position of extraordinary privilege, <laughs> but I believe currently my biggest failure is that my son is a Dodgers fan and not a Red Sox fan.
1: Oh, that hurts.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a real bummer. And he's a very nice boy, and he tells me that the Red Sox <laughs> are his second favorite team. But I know what that really means, which is I don't really care about the Red Sox. <laughs> oh
1: man, uh, number seven. What habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success?
0: Uh, I don't know what you would call it. Um, well, it's either rule following or it's um, <laughs> it's sort of like studiousness. It's like do always doing homework, right? Um, which preparedness, I, preparedness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or or diligence or something yeah. like that. I, yeah. I just I never. I never don't do the work that I'm supposed to do
1: that's a good one. Number eight. Have you ever been in a fist fight
0: no uh i um i in fact i I might go as far as to say I live my life to avoid ever having to be in a fist fight. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sometimes the fist fight finds you, man, but that's still yeah, good. That's true. That you- <laughs> and and then,
0: like the way that I curse at certain U S congressmen on Twitter, right. I, eventually someone might find me. Yeah. That's
1: true. Uh, number nine, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve?
0: Uh, um, wow. There are so many, uh, <laughs> I'll say, um, <clears throat> I'll say, uh, I would like to stare at computers less Mm. in general. I would like to Mm -hmm. even screens. I'll say uh, I would like to stare at screens of any kind, computer, phone, TV. I would like to do that less.
1: Yeah. I think we're all in that boat. Yeah. Uh, Number 10. What three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you?
0: Um, Kind, empathetic, decent. Hmm. Yeah, those, those are all, are all sort good. of the same thing. They're similar. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't you know, paint a, a picture funny of a, a, is particularly a good one, you know. a wide-ranging person, but uh, yeah, those are those are what I'm aiming for. <laughs> You're
1: basically someone's grandma. But that's nice.
0: <laughs> oh my god. If you if everyone could treat me or thought of me the way they thought of their grandma, I would be thrilled. That would be great. <laughs> great. Uh,
1: and then finally, who would you recommend I have a conversation with on this podcast?
0: Oh man. Um uh, oh boy. How about um, do you do you do, um, do you do authors ever?
1: Yeah, I do really anything, anything that's interesting.
0: Um, say Andre Agassi. Oh, that would be
1: an I interesting. Just, one. I, I just, have you
0: read Open, the, his autobiography? I um, I just started reading it, and it's fascinating, and it's great. And I, he was such a big figure yeah. in my life. Um, When I was a kid, because I loved tennis, and he was like, he was my guy. Edberg and uh, Agassi were my guys. And I read, I'm reading his his autobiography, and he's a far more interesting person than I ever would have possibly imagined.
1: Yeah, for sure. I had a huge crush on Edberg. He was my guy as well.
0: So attractive, good that looking,
1: guy. Sweet, yeah. Woo! Oof, yeah,
0: yeah. And so, so like, sort of graceful, you know. Oh yeah,
1: he's a gentleman in a gentleman's game.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I, can I give you one more person yes. that you should do? Is is George Saunders, the okay. author George Saunders. He, uh, if you have never read his short stories, he's a, a sort of a writing hero of mine, um, and he's a fascinating guy. Um, and he he wrote a novel. His first novel. Um, called Lincoln in the Bardo last year, and it's it's incredible. It's wonderful. So uh, those, right. Andre Agassi and George great- shot have them on together. Maybe they'll,
1: <laughs> maybe they'll- do it like James Gordon. Yeah. What do you guys <laughs> want to talk about? Yeah. <laughs> you both write books. Great. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, thank you so much. This was so awesome. I didn't even get to ask you about Regis being your father in law, but we'll have to save that for another time. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> sounds good.
1: Thanks. For I having really me out. appreciate it, Mike. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Bye. Oh. And another thing this weeks that's what she read is actually something that I believe I have talked about on the pod before. But after talking to Michael, it felt like it was something that those of you who have not gotten to it should definitely read. It's back from the end of 2016. And if you recall at the time, we were all saying that 2016 was the worst year ever. And everybody was sort of joking that when 2017 came around, things would be fixed. And we mainly thought it was bad because famous people died, David Bowie and Prince and Muhammad Ali. There were other things in society that had us down, but so much of it now feels a little bit superficial and trivial compared to what we're dealing with now. But Gia Tolentino wrote a piece called The Worst Year Ever Until Next Year for The New Yorker back in December of 2016. And I find myself referring back to it so often because of her commentary about how Now, more than ever, we are able to read and digest sadness and bad news and concern and misfortune more than ever before. But our capacity to deal with it and to handle it and to get by and not be bogged down and saddened by it hasn't changed at all. So we are trying to accommodate this overwhelming amount of information with the same tools and skill sets we always had when we didn't have the internet and podcasts and news and Twitter and social media to present with us all these struggles. And it's just a really great story and always sort of brings me an odd amount of peace when I read it, even though she has no solutions just to understand that we're all sort of in the same boat and to try to figure out ways to kind of deal with it. So again, it's Gia Tolentino and it's from the New Yorker back in 2016, the worst year ever until next year. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me.